Well, you made it today, right? You made it. How you doing? Okay, thumbs up if you're doing well. Sideways, so-so. Down, not so good. Ready? One, two, three, go. A huge range of everything, right? Yeah. And now raise your hand if you're wondering sort of what are we doing here? Anybody wondering what are we doing here? Not too bad, huh? Um, well, in case you were wondering, or maybe you're not wondering, um, we're going to talk tonight about what it is that we are doing and why it's good, good for us, why it's beneficial, and um, just give you a bigger context about mindfulness and how it works. Just to say a little about my own story, when I was... Um, I got started meditating when I was in my early 20s. And I was, at the time, I was traveling around through India. And I was, I ended up in Dharamsala, India, which is where the Dalai Lama has his government in exile. And I had been kind of what they call a Dharma bum, although I wasn't so yet into, into um, meditation or Buddhism or yoga, but I was curious and I was kind of traveling around and ended up, as I said, in Dharamsala, and um, at that point got involved with an organization that was helping to do work to, for, um, to free Tibet. And so I got very involved with this organization and was really working quite passionately for the cause. And then um, there, was, there were these Buddhist teachings going on the whole time, so there was all this, this Buddhism going on. And I, wasn't, I was a little curious, but I wasn't that curious, but I didn't think that I should really get into it because I was an activist and I thought it was really self-absorbed when the planet was in so much trouble and all these people were meditating and why were they doing that? But I was curious. And so I remember spending some time going to, um, just going and sitting in the back of teachings. And I would sit in the back of the room and everybody would be listening intently and I'd pull out a bar of chocolate with a really loud, crinkly wrapper and unwrap it and be completely rude. But it was interesting to me. <laughs> I was rude, but it was interesting. And, um, and then at a certain point, I just thought, I want to see what a retreat would be like. So I did a retreat that was a Buddhist, uh, Tibetan Buddhist style retreat. And the thing I didn't say is that up until that point, I had had a very difficult year. I had just graduated from college and was really lost. Didn't know what I wanted to do with myself, what I wanted to be when I grew up, whatever that meant. Um, I was, yeah, I was pretty depressed and lost. And so I remember going on this retreat, and in this retreat is a different style of retreat, but basically there's lots of teachings, and you would get up early in the morning and it would be freezing up there because you're up in the foothills of the Himalayas and you would, be, you would be putting tons of blankets around you to sit there and meditate at like five in the morning. And then there was this teaching that this one Tibetan uh, American nun was giving and it was the teaching of what's called the four, uh, sorry, the eight worldly dharmas or the eight truths about the world. And up until this point, this was about the fifth or sixth day of the retreat, I had been interested, but not kind of, it didn't hit home to me. But she gave this teaching, and the teaching was that when, that, that although we want our lives to be really good, we want things to work out well for us, of course, the truth about life 
is that things are constantly changing and that things are going from the pleasant to unpleasant constantly back and forth and back and forth. And so these eight truths about the world are that there's pleasure and there's pain, that there's gain and then loss, that there's fame and disrepute, and that there's praise and blame. Okay, These are the eight truths about the world. And what's true about it is that we're always looking for the good, the good side of things. We all want pleasure. We all want to gain things. Who wants to lose things, you know, especially things that we love? Who wants to lose them? Who wants to feel pain? Who wants to, people are more attracted generally to being honored rather than dishonored. And it's much nicer, of course, to, have, to be praised than to be blamed. And yet, the truth of the world is that they're both there. That if there's one, you can't have one without the other. At some point, you're always going to have the difficult thing happen in your life. But what most of us tend to do is run madly after what's pleasurable and do whatever we can to push away what's bad or difficult or undesirable. And so as she was giving that teaching, I was sitting there and there was this moment where it was almost as if my life kind of flashed in front of my eyes. And I saw that I had spent probably most of my, um, up until that point in my life, running after praise, wanting people, my teachers, my family, my friends, wanting to be, to succeed and be perfect and be a good girl and be, be really, really praised for who I was. And then at the same time, I was pushing away constantly, get rid of this blame, and I would freak out. Anytime anyone blamed me, I would feel like cut to the core of me. Like, how could they possibly think badly of me? And just what a wild ride I was on. What kind of mind this was that goes, runs after praise and runs away from blame and is just in this kind of roller coaster. And I saw that and I just had this deep understanding that I don't want my life to be like that. Not that I didn't want to get rid of pleasure. And of course, it would be nice only to feel pleasure, or only to gain things. But that's not what happens with life. What the nun said to us was, there is an alternative. And that alternative is a mind that has peace that one can live a life where all of these things are going on, so we're not getting rid of aspects of our life, but we can be in the center of it, we can be at ease, we can have a mind of equilibrium, of calm, of ease, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what life brings us. Kind of like the eye in the center of the hurricane. Our life may be giving us all sorts of things that are difficult or really pleasurable. And yet, there's a place that we can be at home, as Marv and Deborah were saying, at home, no matter what life brings us. And that teaching was what inspired me to continue on with my practice, because I just, I just had such a strong realization and understanding about myself and I wanted to change it. And so it began, you know, a 20-year journey into practicing and studying and 
learning to meditate and really going deeply into it at times, spending time, more time in Asia, in monasteries, practicing in the United States. And then ultimately, um, you know, in the last number of years, sharing the Dharma. When I first started listening to the teachings, there was a lot of dogma that was floating around. People would say to me, oh, you know, there's this whole theory of reincarnation. You really need to believe that in order to meditate. And I thought, I do? What if I don't believe in this? And I was really lucky because, um, and in my view, by the way, you don't need to believe in reincarnation. Um, Now I believe that. Um, I was lucky because I was, I had a friend who I met who was a person, he was, he was a little bit older than me. I was 22, he was 25 or something. And he had been a Tibetan monk for a number of years. And he just had the best attitude. He loved to meditate. He loved the philosophy, loved the teachings. And we would just spend hours at the chai shops in India, just drinking and talking philosophy and meditation and And I remember saying to him at one point, I remember saying, you know, I'm kind of confused because people are telling me I need to believe certain things and and, um, I just don't really believe them. And does that mean I can't meditate? Does that mean I can't work on myself? And he was just so loving and supportive. He's like, no, 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 of course not. Actually, the fact that you're questioning things, that's a really good thing. It means you're using your intelligence. It means you're not unquestionably joining some, you know, meditation cult and going, yes, okay, whatever you say, but you're actually using your best intelligence to explore the teachings. And so that when you do, if and when you do decide that they're for you, you'll be in a really much better place than someone who accepts them just because they think they should. He said, if you went to buy gold, you wouldn't just go look at the gold, see a gold ring, pick it up and take it and leave. You would look at it, you would have it checked out, you would have it examined and look for flaws and impurities in the gold. So it's the same with the teachings, which they say are precious, like gold. You don't just accept everything. So so the reason I'm saying this to you is it's important that you use your own intelligence around what we're teaching that it's not just accepted unquestioningly, but that you see if it concurs with your direct experience. And then you can accept it if you want to. And, and this is what the Buddha said. This is what the Buddha taught. There's a very famous discourse that the Buddha gave called the Kalama Sutta. And the Kalama Sutta just means um, discourse or teaching. And Kalama is the town of people that it was given to. So if you imagine back at the time of the Buddha, 2,500 years ago, apparently it was this very vibrant time with all of these different teachers and teachings. So it wasn't just the Buddha living in North India during this time. Apparently, like pretty much everywhere you went, you'd look under a tree and there would be another teacher spouting some belief or teaching. They'd tell you things. And there were just this whole range of teachings. And if you read back in the early texts, some of them were kind of amusing. Like if you... um, Well, some of them were like, if you bathed in the Ganges, then you could wash away and purify yourself entirely, which is interesting now, considering how polluted the Ganges has gotten. But anyway, um, there were others who, this one was a little weird. If you lick your hand, you might get enlightened. 
And then there was one, cows are really holy in India, so they said that if you, if you walk around on all fours and moo like a cow, you'll get enlightened. I mean, there were some there was other like, very reasonable teachings, but there were some silly ones too. And um, so, so the Kalamas were people in a village who were confused, and they were, they were spiritual seekers, much like yourself. But there were all this prof- profusion of teachings, and they just didn't know, what do I believe? Is it the cow thing? Is it the Ganges? Is it meditate until I, can't, I turn into um, you know, completely fasting and just turn to, to uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, until I get really thin and I'm fasting. Um, and the Buddha said the following to them. He said, these are very good questions. He said, and it's just, it's exactly what my friend was saying to me. He said, they're very good questions. And he said, when you know for yourself that things lead to harm for yourself and others and are blamed by people who are wise, don't follow them. When you know for yourself that these things are good and are praised by people who are wise and lead to benefit and happiness, follow them. So he said, don't believe something if you've heard it before, if it's an old tradition, if it's written in religious or other books, if superficially it seems to be true, on the surface it seems reasonable, but you haven't checked it out, if it's based in logic or philosophy, or he teaches, he teaches logic, philosophy, um, or if teachers or elders say it's true. He says, don't believe it even if teachers or elders say it's true, even me, meaning the Buddha, even if the Buddha says it's true, he said, don't believe it. Only believe something you have clearly seen for yourself to be true. If after fully examining and considering a teaching carefully, you find it leads to happiness for one and all, then accept it and live up to it. So I'm leaving you with this. I'm starting, we're starting the retreat with this. Again, in, inviting you to really be the scientist of your own mind to investigate your body and mind like it's a laboratory and not take things on faith, not take things because you've heard they're right, but see what happens. Practice mindfulness. Is it making you happier? Great, keep going. Is it making you more unhappy? Is it agitating you? Is it causing you to suffer? Then don't follow this. So, so this is the, the Buddha's uh, request. After I left the Tibetan Buddhist centers, I went to, uh, to a monastery in Thailand and did my first Vipassana retreat, much like the one we're doing here. And it was really hard. It was really hard. It was similar in the structure in terms of the silence and the sitting and the walking and so forth. Um, the only uh, diff- difference was there were scorpions everywhere, and you had to check your bed. You couldn't. You had to go when you came into your room at night. You had to take your flashlight and look under your bed to make sure there were no scorpions. That was the big mindfulness practice. Scorpions are a really good mindfulness practice. Um, and it was hot, and it was uh, there were a lot of bugs, and you know. So you you have it good for this this particular trait. And what I learned to do was exactly what you're learning to do, which is to practice this art of being present, of mindfulness, to spend each moment as best you can being aware. 
being aware from the moment we had to practice, being aware from the moment we woke up till the moment we went to bed. Not that we were able to do that, but we were able, we were trying that. We were being, we were practicing mindfulness in the sitting, in the walking, in the eating, when we were brushing our teeth, when we were walking to another area and it wasn't, you know, typical walking meditation. It was kind of like a mindfulness boot camp is what you're on in a sense to cultivate this moment-to-moment attention that will help with deepen your understanding. So mindfulness is this present time awareness. And it's, so it's being in the present moment, we all know this at this point, being in the present moment with this open and curious attention. And I'll talk about that a little bit more as we go on. Mindfulness is sometimes translated as non-distractability and sometimes translated as remembering or recollecting. And it's often, it's often paired with a word that reminds us to have a clear comprehension of experience. So there's a seeing clearly. So Vipassana, actually, the direct translation of Vipassana is seeing clearly. And the direct translation of mindfulness, the word is sati, is, um, is, is this uh, non-distractedness or remembering, recollecting. Um, and when it's coupled, it's, so it's seeing clearly and discerning what is true, essentially, clearly comprehending what is happening. On a basic level, there's something about waking up from automaticity. You know, many of us live our lives in this kind of zombie zone, you know, it, and it's not like our lives are bad or anything, but it's, it's, it can be as if we're disconnected, as if we're not connected to ourselves. And so how, I'm, I know we often have the experience of getting in the car, getting out of the car, driving maybe an hour, and having no idea what happened in between. Is that right? You've had that experience. Of course you have. Or, you know, you can spend a whole day and not remember what went on during the day because it's as though many of us can be really checked out of life. And so mindfulness is this invitation to come into our lives, into our bodies, into our hearts, to check out what's true, to be present. It also, as we've been noticing all day, that our minds are all over the place, of course, and that... um, that our minds tend to be in the past or in the future. And so oftentimes when they're in the past, we're worrying about things, we're remembering things we did, we're feeling bad about things we did, or we're planning things we're going to do, we're excited or we're anxious about things we're going to do. So there's this kind of careening back and forth between the past and the future. And mindfulness invites us right into the present moment. Because most of the time in the present moment, things are okay, exactly as they are, they're okay. It's the past and the future that causes all the problems. Right here, if you were just to take a moment and just kind of sense your body, just, just take a moment, just feel in your body. Now there may be pain, there may be unpleasant sensation, but there also may be just kind of a neutral feeling, like, oh yeah, my butt on the cushion, or I'm just here. The present moment, it's not always very exciting or dramatic, 
but it's a real refuge for us because it takes us out of this kind of incessant thinking that causes all the problems. And I'll talk about that in a second. We've all had it. We've all accessed mindfulness. This is nothing magical or new or highly spiritual or only for specially attained people. This is an ordinary thing that we can access. So I'm imagining that you've been in nature and you've suddenly felt deeply connected. Just there's something happened. You just you're just were present. You were fully there, right there in nature. So raise your hand if you've had that experience. Pretty much most of us on the retreat, sure. So that's a kind of mindfulness when you're right there, really connected with it. Or any of you who in the midst of an athletic activity, so you're doing some kind of, you know, you're running or something and you just feel completely in, your, in the zone. You know, you're really there and, not, and nothing is uh, kind of disturbing you. You're just with your body and present. So who's had that experience? Yeah, m- most of the people. Or if any of you do creative arts or music or dance or writing or art, and there's just the sense of being in the flow and being fully connected. So who's had that experience? Yeah. So look, you've all been mindful a lot. So in your life, what about when you fall in love and you meet someone and you're just right there with them and there's nobody else you had that experience? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but you can if you want. Raise your hand. All right, good. A bunch of you. So, so this is accessible to us at any moment, but the problem is usually it tends to be a peak or special experience that cultivates it, that brings it on. What we're learning to do is have it be kind of an ordinary experience. And we're taking the ordinary and we're making it extraordinary. And that can shift our life because then the ordinary life starts to take on a whole new quality and we break this trance of being automatic, an automatic pilot, and disconnected. So I've been working um, at a mindfulness center at UCLA where we're doing, it's called the Mindful Awareness Research Center. And we're doing research on mindfulness. Most of the research we're doing lately has been with children. And, um, but we're also kind of a, and we're teaching, we're teaching lots of mindfulness classes to people. So not in a Buddhist context, but in a secular context through the university. And I've been so interested, I've learned so much in the last couple of years about the relationship, but uh, the science of mindfulness and what it does and what, what, um, what mindfulness um, has to offer essentially and what science has been showing. And it's still really, really early in the field of, um, of it, just in terms of science, it's really young. Although it's changed exponentially in the last 10 years. So when I went about 10 years ago, if you were to do a little search on mindfulness and anything, a scientific research paper, you might have found about 100 papers. And now there's almost 1,000. So in the last year, there's been about a 10, you know, 10 times the amount. But if you were to look up something like the relationship between exercise and heart disease, there's probably 100,000 research studies, right? So it's still very, very early, very small. Mindfulness is being shown to be beneficial with, um, it, with the physical body, with issues of uh, stress, stress-related conditions. So um, boosting the immune system, helping reduce reduce nervous system reactions, just just 
helping us relax and find ease. And one of the most interesting studies they did a number of years ago was they, um, you know what psoriasis is? It's that skin condition where people get, it's kind of like itchy skin condition. So the treatment for psoriasis is that you get, in, you go into like this tanning booth, sort of, and they, that you get these lights that treat that, this kind of UV light that treats the psoriasis and it helps it heal. So they did a study where the people were in, the, in these booths and some group just got the light treatment and some of the group got um, the light treatment plus a tape where they were meditating, where they were practicing just what you were doing. And the people who practiced healed faster. So it's very interesting for the, the healing response, the immune response. They just completed a study at UCLA, I think it was in the news recently, um, where they taught mindfulness to people with HIV, HIV-positive people, and found that it boosted the T-cell count, which is really desirable and great. Now again, early, early studies. We don't know yet. We can't say 100% it works. They haven't been replicated. With science, it's all about replication, and it hasn't been replicated, but, um, but they're very positive. In the area of mental health, they've done a lot, especially looking at the relationship between mindfulness and anxiety and mindfulness and depression. And there's been a lot of treatments develop, developed using mindfulness. Um, and one of the studies that I love that they also did uh, at UCLA was they, they showed... Um, Okay, well, let me explain this. So they, they hooked people up to brain scans to see what part of their brain was lighting up in relationship to, scary, to a scary uh, uh, stimuli. So what they would do, or scary or, or emotion-arousing stimuli. So they had this, they had this um, screen, and on it would be a face that was scared, or a face that was angry, or a face that was disgusted. And the people had to look at it and say scared, disgusted, angry, whatever the emotion was. And then they checked out what was going on in their brain. The other choice was there were names like Mary, Fred, George, and they had to name the person. And then they saw what their brain did. So what they found was that the people who, who noticed, who said the name, Mary, George, nothing particular lit up in the brain. But the people who labeled the emotion, who said scared or worried or disgusted, what happened was, when we have, when we have an, an arousal response, the part of the brain called the amygdala lights up, and it's deep inside the brain, and it's the primitive part of the brain. So anytime we get scared, if I were to say, boo, that part of your brain would light up. <laughs> but then, when you label it, the front part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, calms it down. So what they saw was that if you are mindful of your emotion, you actually, in that moment, just through the act of being mindful, can calm that emotion down. And so this is really exciting. Just, oh, can you label your emotion? And so while you're here, be aware of your emotions. And we're going to teach you. We're going to give you a bunch of tools to learn how to be mindful of emotions. But this is, it's really exciting, seeing this in the, the brain research. They've also done things where they've hooked up people to, um, to they've, they've, they've studied the brains of monks who've been meditating for 20 years. And these are people you might call the athletes of meditation, right? They're the, the Olympic athletes, yeah. 
um, and they, st they studied their brains and they found that their, that prefrontal cortex region was, was thicker than everybody else's and then an ordinary person of the same age range. And this part of the brain is responsible for decision-making, for flexible thinking, for uh, empathy, for uh, sort of, it's, it's what's called executive functioning. It's sort of, it's the part of your brain that plans and organizes and kind of can calm and regulate your nervous system. It's a, it's a really good part of the brain that you want to thicken. <laughs> So now you, want, you probably are thinking, okay, well, does it work after just five days or six days of meditating? They have shown in the preliminary studies that there are even changes in people who've done it for short periods of time. Not uh, these big changes that we're seeing with the long-term meditators, but for the short-term meditators, yes. So mindfulness is making, is making an impact and can be really helpful with anxiety, depression, with physical symptoms, with even changing your brain. And when the Buddha taught mindfulness, he said, he said, oh monks and nuns, I teach this for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of awakening, namely, I call it, and he calls it, the four foundations of mindfulness. So on this retreat, we're learning to, um, sure, we'll be, we'll, the tools that we give you will help with these issues that I mentioned. And there's something even more profound that the Buddha pointed to with mindfulness. That through mindfulness, we can come to the overcoming of sorrow, of lamentation, of grief, to awakening, just through this simple practice, believe it or not, the simple practice of mindfulness, of one breath after the next, after the next, can lead us to waking up. It's pretty amazing. So there are different ways that we can be mindful. And it's important to notice this because sometimes we get sort of ideas about mindfulness. But sometimes when our mindfulness can be very focused. And this is what we're cultivating as we do the breath meditation to start ourselves off. We're starting with the breath because it allows, Marva was talking about this this morning, it allows our mind to concentrate and calm and stabilize. And so... It's kind of like our minds are all over the place. And then it, I actually just saw this experiment the other day. So a friend of mine had, had a, a glass vase with uh, marbles in it, colored marbles. And she, she's someone who teaches mindfulness to kids. And so she wanted to show us what you could, how she explains our minds settling and calming. So she put in some baking soda into the water with the marbles. And immediately what happened is the, the, the water just got all churned up and there was all this baking soda and dust flying around. So this is like our minds, right? But it, then she said, and what she would do with the kids is she'd say, okay, now you close your eyes and you just take a few breaths. And you breathe and you breathe and as you wait. And then she has them open your eyes and guess what happened? The baking soda sunk to the bottom and the glass was clear. And so this is essentially what we're doing. It takes a little longer than three breaths, of course. But, um, but we're, sitting, we're sitting with our mind. 
We're allowing it to stabilize and calm on a neutral anchor, the breath, so that we can begin to see more clearly, vipassana, seeing clearly. And as I said, there are different kinds of mindfulness. There's the mindfulness that's very focused. And then, and you might think of that as a telephoto lens on a camera. So sometimes when you're being mindful, you're really, you're, you're focusing and you're honing in really specifically on your breath. But then other times, your mindfulness is wide open. And that's more like a panoramic lens on the camera. So you're open, wide. And you have to learn, ultimately, to uh, which one is appropriate when. So a friend of mine has a 16-year-old daughter who was, she, she was, she was very, she was getting her driver's license and she was very mindful, but only one kind of mindfulness. She had the very focused mindfulness. So as she's driving, she'd be driving down the street and while well, she had her learner's permit and someone else was in the car. And, um, and she'd see things straight ahead. And so she'd see a mailbox and she would just go straight towards the mailbox because <laughs> she wasn't using that wider mindfulness, right? That peripheral vision that would have been more appropriate. So she just like, boom, boom. So anyway, she did not pass the first time she did the test, but I think she's better now. Um, So you learn what kind of mindfulness is appropriate when. And that's like when you're doing the walking meditation and you're just really focusing intent on your steps and it's helping your mind calm and settle. And then suddenly you hear the turkeys and you stop and you just kind of look around and you take in the turkeys and the noise and the sound and the wind and the colors and the sky and yeah okay so that's still mindfulness you're not being unmindful you're just mindful in a different way so as we're doing the mindfulness practice what begins to happen is um, we notice that we have all these thoughts going on And these thoughts tend to lead to lots of suffering. But I want to give a really strong caveat here. This practice is not about making us stop thinking. I think people have this image about meditation that we're going to stop, that if we meditate long enough and well enough, our thoughts will stop. There'll be this moment of bliss and the thoughts will be gone. And that's not true. I had that experience when my, on my first retreat, this retreat in Thailand, I said a note to my teacher and I said something to the effect of, I'm, I'm really working hard and I'm able to be with a few breaths at a time and I'm feeling centered and relaxed and connected and I've had some understandings about myself, but I can't get my thoughts to stop. And I remember her reading the note out loud and she just had the funniest look on her face, like, what is this girl talking about? We're not trying to make our thoughts stop. There are certain states of meditation where the thoughts really get quiet in the background and it's not so much that the thought, and and, and even in some very rarefied forms of meditation, thought can stop. But mostly what we're doing here, this is not about stopping our thoughts. It's about learning about our thoughts and ourselves and learning to be mindful throughout. So we'll notice that our thoughts do these crazy things, like our thoughts will, um, you know, you'll start, you'll, there's a word in the Buddhist language that we talk about called papancha. And papancha means proliferation of thought. And it's kind of like you have one little thought and it leads to the next and to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. The next thing you know, you're like 20 miles 
down the road with all these thoughts. So like, for instance, this happens to us all the time. The other night, I woke up in the middle of the night with a toothache. Now, I have a rule for myself, which is never believe anything you think in the middle of the night. You know what I mean? But this night I did for a few minutes. So I woke up, I woke up with a toothache, and I was like, oh my gosh, I have a bad toothache. Wow, it's a really bad toothache. Oh no, what if there's something wrong? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And then in about three minutes, I needed tooth implants. <laughs> Literally, that's where my mind went. And after about another couple of minutes, I was like, what are you talking about? This is papancha, this proliferation of mind that we have to be really vigilant about, pay really close attention if we're doing that. Because that kind of thinking is going to lead to suffering, as it did in my case. You see this, you, you, know, you have a good breath and then you think, wow, I'm actually able to be with the breath and I think I'm going to go to the monastery and join, just give up everything and become a monk or a nun and then I'll live my life in happiness and bliss and get enlightened. You know, and, and like four seconds have passed, right? And you had this thing. Or then, and then like the next minute you have another, oh, I can't be with my breath. I'm the worst meditator in the world. This is horrible. I, why did I come? I hate this place. Oh, you know, this is what our minds do. So the idea with the mindfulness is can we catch it? Can we not get on the train? And this, I keep saying the train, and here's why. Because an analogy that I think is helpful is that if you're at a train station and a train is leaving the station, you can get on it, and you and the, and getting on the train is analogous to ha- to getting in the thoughts, you know, believing the thoughts, and the thoughts will just go and go and go and go and go, like I said. Or you can be in the train station and the train will leave the station, and you can stay in the station. And that's you finding yourself at the center of the hurricane, or at home. No matter what the thoughts are, you don't have to get on board. And it's not like thoughts aren't helpful, and we don't have incredible thoughts, and creative thoughts, and amazing thoughts. Of course we do. Thoughts are not always our friend. Sometimes they're our friend, but they're not always our friend. And so what we learn to do is discriminate what kinds of thoughts are like getting on that train and ending up 20 miles down the road, or what kind of thoughts are a helpful thought that helps us, in fact, even be more present. And so we learn to discriminate this. Once I was sitting a retreat... this. This, I was just reminded of this story the other day. I was um, about the way that our thoughts create all sorts of stories about things that may or may not be true. And I was sitting in a retreat, one of my early retreats, and there were two managers. This was I was in Nepal at the time, and there were two managers, and one of them was ext- was I thought extremely helpful to me and kind. And any time I had a problem, he was right there. And the other manager yelled at me. And um, the reason he yelled at me was because we were told we weren't supposed to do yoga, and I was sneaking yoga, and he found me doing yoga. We don't do that here. <laughs> but he said, no yoga. And I said, oh, sorry, and I felt really bad. So, um, so what happened was I started to create this whole story. Oh, this is the good manager, and this is the bad manager, and he's great, and he's evil. And, um, and just my mind just went with it until I had this whole constructed story. Well... At the end of the retreat, 
I met a woman my age and we spent a lot of time talking, which I'm hoping you guys will meet each other at the end of the retreat, get to know each other. And we were talking. And one of the things that our conversation was said, we said at one point was, I said to her, and you know, there were two managers and one was awful and the other was great. And she said, I know you're right. One was awful and the other was great. And we're going on and on about how we liked one and hated the other. And at that point, one of the managers came up and I said, there he is, that awful guy. And she's like, what are you talking about? That's the nice one. And we had had completely different projections on the managers. I hope the managers are here. You don't take this personally. <laughs> but what happens in your mind, you have a story and these projections go and go and go. And they're not, it's, there's not a truth to them in a sense. We believe them. We get stuck in them. But your friend may have the complete opposite projection. And so it's just so interesting to begin to see what kinds of stories our mind does. This art of mindfulness is returning to the present moment again and again and again. No matter what's happening, can we be present amidst what is here? And the Buddha said it this way. One of, somebody came up to the Buddha and he asked him for the teachings, if he could just sum up his teachings and give the quickest teaching he could think of. And at first the Buddha said no, because he was on his way to get alms round, to get food. And then the guy said, please, I just want one teaching before, you know, who knows what's going to happen in life. If you could just give me one teaching. And the second time the Buddha refused. And then the guy asked the third time, and his name was Vahiya. And apparently in the Buddhist stories, if you ask three times, you got to answer. And so here's what he said. He said, You should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sense will be merely what is sensed. In the known will be merely what is known. In this way, you should train yourself. In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. And what this means is that we're connecting with life on the level of direct experience, exactly as things are. So when you hear the turkeys, there's the sound of turkeys. There's not a whole story, I love turkeys, wow, remember last Thanksgiving when I ate a turkey? Oh, that's bad. You know, that's, that's papancha, that's what our mind does. But instead, can we stay with that direct experience of hearing? And as we do this, as we begin with one breath, and then one breath again, and then one breath again, we start to gain a facility, an ability to be with things as they are. So first, we're, it's kind of like we, we're, um, we have a really small capacity because we're not trained in it. This is something, it's something new. You know, for most of us, it's a, it's, we're just learning mindfulness. And so when you just learn something, you're, you may be naturally okay at it or not so good at it or bad at it or whatever you might have a story about yourself. But it's something we're learning. So in other words, when you sit down to play a pian- to learn the piano, you don't start off with Mozart. You start off with scales. 
And so we're starting off the scales of mindfulness are just breathing in and breathing out and being present for it. Without this whole conceptual layer, the scene is just the scene. The herd is just the herd. And as we do it, we get better and better and better and retrain our mind. So over these days, you're going to get better at it. If it felt like today all you were doing was lost in thought and thinking and worrying and sleeping, that's okay. It's just the first day. As we practice, we develop it. And then we start to be able to develop, to be mindful no matter what's happening. We can be mindful in the midst of anxiety. We can be mindful in the midst of sadness. We can be mindful in the midst of joy because our capacity grows. And that's when mindfulness gets really exciting. Now it is hard to be mindful. It's really, really hard to spend this day coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath. I have um, this little ad that I've cut out of a paper and it's a picture of a woman meditating and she's wearing, I always thought this word, she's wearing pajamas, but anyway. It said, it's an ad for Ceridine, which evidently is an anxiety reliever and the ad says, inner peace, now available in capsules. So, (laughs) wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. It takes effort. It takes time and work to do it. And, um, And also relaxing and letting yourself be here and not, um, not, kind of overdoing it, but just really, really being present to your experience. And it's difficult because, because we, our minds have been trained to be the opposite of mindful. We live in a culture that's about distractedness. I mean, everything we do, it distracts us. It doesn't take us inward, it takes us outward between the internet and television and movies and um, and then all the things we have to do and the be and what we have to produce and responsibilities and our whole life is geared towards being outward instead of inward. Some people say we're a culture of human doings, not human beings. So when you sit down and try to make your mind be mindful, what does it do? It just rebels. It just says, ah, get me out of here. And... Um, And for 30, 20, 30, I don't know how old you are, but all these years, your mind has been practicing distractedness. So now we're inviting you to practice non-distractedness, and it's not like suddenly, okay, great, we can do it. We have to retrain our brains. And what's interesting when you look at the brain biology is the brain doesn't really want to pay attention to the breath because it's an automatic process. And so the, the, in, in brain biology, what they're learning is that brains, want, in a sense, are conserving energy. So it's an automatic process. The body is breathing, so why pay attention to it? There's no need to pay attention from a biological level uh, to it when there's many other things to pay attention to. What's ironic is how much time our brains can pay attention to things like anxiety, you know, anxiety-producing things, right? Um, so, so what we're doing is teaching, the, and what they've seen is it's beneficial when our brains can be taught to pay attention to these automatic processes. And it's kind of like we're developing a muscle, this muscle of mindfulness. 
And this muscle of mindfulness is not, um, it's not going to get developed by doing something really light and easy. So it's kind of analogous to if we're building our biceps. I was talking about this today. So if I'm building my bicep, I don't really have a pen here or something, but I wouldn't use a pen to lift weights, right? Or this piece of paper. If I wanted to build my bicep, it would take a really long time, right? <laughs> to build any muscle. The same with mindfulness. If you're going to build this mindfulness muscle, you need some resistance. You need something that's a little heavy duty. And what it is, is your mind wandering. That's your resistance. That's your weight. That's your weight. So every time your mind wanders, you bring it back. And then it wanders again, and you bring it back again, and it wanders again, and you bring it back again. And in that way, the muscle develops. And for those of you, I was saying this today, but for those of you who, um, if any of you have ADD or ADHD, what we're seeing is those brains tend to wander even more than sort of other brains. Well, the really good news is you get more time to practice. <laughs> you get to keep working, and then your mind gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So there's, um, there's benefits to this. The last piece I just want to say is that the kind of awareness that mindfulness is, is what I called earlier an open, non-judgmental awareness, a curious attention. And this doesn't mean that our mind won't have judgments, because I bet you pretty much at some point today, everybody's mind had a judgment, whether it was to yourself or towards somebody else or to something here, our mind judges, because that's what our minds do. I'm not talking about that, although if that's happening, the invitation is to try to be aware of that and notice there's a judgment. Ah, there's a judgment. I'm judging. I'm judging myself. What I'm talking about is a quality of mind that's open and curious and interested in the experience that's actually really kind and loving towards ourselves. This culture this American culture, I mean, it's different in different cultures, but it produces people who are suffering from the disease of self-hatred. And I don't know why, I mean, we can make lots of speculations, but for whatever reason, most people are suffering from a lot of self-judgment, a lot of self-criticism. And what mindfulness can do is it can, it's the attitude in which we hold our experience that can transform things that we can meet our experience with, with kindness instead of with judgment. And the judgment might occur, but then we say, oh, there's a judgment. We're mindful of the judgment. So we, we do our best to, okay, there's a breath. Okay, it's just a breath. It's not, I'm a bad person because I couldn't stay with the breath. It's, oh, there's my mind wandering, or there's my mind with the breath. And you'll see that as you practice that, it will begin to transfer out into your lives. So the more you can be, and it's not always easy to have a kind, non-judgmental attitude, you will, um, you will begin to see that it's possible to be kinder to yourself in general. This is, um, this is a little poem. Some of you heard this before, but... It's kind of about the way we put very high expectations on ourselves. If you can start the day without caffeine or pet pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, 
If you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you could eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can overlook when people take things out on you when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without drugs, liquor, etc., then you're probably a dog. <laughs> so we learn with mindfulness to be really kind towards ourselves. It's kind of like we're training a puppy. Some of you may know this analogy, but if you're training a puppy or kind of potty training a puppy, I don't know what it's called, Tra- you know, to not pee all over the house, and you have some newspaper out there, and the puppy starts running around everywhere, and then it doesn't pee on the paper. It's, it's just like our minds running around everywhere and not coming back to the breath. <laughs> we don't say, um, we don't go, you bad, bad puppy, you know, and hit the puppy and get mad at the puppy. That wouldn't really be helpful. And yet, we don't let the puppy run around and pee all over the house. We find this really loving attitude where we kind of gently pick him up or her up and put him on the paper and teach him again and again and again. And that's what we're doing with our minds. We're training ourselves in this really kind way and changing our brain. And as we do this, we begin to create new neural pathways of kindness and care and compassion. And they looked at, they, like they look, they examine these monks and they check out their compassion levels and they see the parts of the brain that light up around compassion and they see that these monks can generate compassion because they've been cultivating it. They've spent years and years and years cultivating it. So we can change our brains. And this is kind of one of the most exciting things in, in the frontiers of brain research. So as we do this practice, as we sit here and get it, find ourselves lost in thought and then come back again and again and learn to be um, kind to ourselves, and even if we're really judgmental of ourselves, even if there's a moment where we can say, oh, okay, I'm judging myself, right, it's okay, and just come back. And as we do this, we begin to find that home that we've been talking about, that eye in the center of the storm, that part of us that can be present no matter what's occurring, that with all those ups and downs that I talked about in life, the praise and the blame and the gain and the loss and all of that, they will come and go because that's life. They will come and go. But we'll have a capacity, and ability to be present no matter what life brings us. And in that is so much joy and so much connection to ourself and so much access to our own goodness. What Deborah talked about last night, that part of us that's covered over, it just is going to start to glimmer and shine and come through. And we're going to see it more and more over the course of the next couple of days. So let's close our eyes for a moment. And just take a moment to um, 
just see, just check in with how you're doing. And let yourself be exactly who you are, where you are, feeling whatever it is you're feeling. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.